Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Um, there are a lot of young faces in here, and I, and, I mean, including mine. Um, so it's nice to see my generation represented. Thank you. So my Twitter feed, anyone else's Twitter feed or social media feeds dominated by Asbury and what's happening up there? And um, it's so great that, that, you know, this, if you don't know, Asbury is a college and seminary. And there was a chapel service that just sort of has been carrying on for almost two weeks. And it's so great that when this happened, a bunch of middle-aged folks decided to go check it out and see if it was real. So my Twitter feed is full of Christian celebrities going and saying, oh yeah, it's real, guys. Like, we care what you think. If it's a move of God and an actual revival, it will reverberate for generations. And if it's not, who could argue with college students praying and worshiping and surrendering their lives? The need to label it, comment on it, or be cynical towards it is so much a part of the reason why if God's going to do something in the church, he's going to do it through younger folks. We, the previous generations, have handed you a big ball of awful. (laughs) We've melded Christianity with so much of the anxiety and idolatry of the age. And so if you're under 25, we bless you. And we want you to go all out in your pursuit of Jesus of Nazareth. And we need you to pray for us. That the weight of our cynicism and the weight of all of our failure would not keep us from rejoicing wherever God is actually moving. Whoever he chooses to move through. Sound good? All right, let's close in prayer. We don't even need a, we didn't go, we're done. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, quite. All right. Unfortunately, we're not done. Um, I, <laughs> we're going to dive in a little bit. Uh, we're in the middle of a, a conversation in the book of Mark. And we're calling it The Cross-Shaped Life because that makes a cool song title and sermon title. And, um, and also, it's actually with the whole book of Mark, it turns out to be about. So just a couple things via review. Fire up the slides, if you would. First of all, the book of Mark is it's based in geography, and it asks three central questions. The first book, the first part of the book, asks the question, who is Jesus? And it's centered around the area of Galilee. That's chapters one through eight. The second act we're going to begin today is when Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, predicts his death, and the question that is wrestled with in the text is, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? Jesus has one view, and the disciples have a different view. And then once Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, I think chapters 11, 12, um, the question then becomes, well, how does Jesus become enthroned as king? And so if you're following along on the map, the glorious map, fire up the map. There it is. Yep, yep, you gotta have really young eyes. Pray for our eyesight, young folks. Um, The top, that top little blue circle is the Sea of Galilee, and the whole book of Mark proceeds south. 
So we start up top, and Jesus does most of his stuff around the Sea of Galilee, then heads down to Jerusalem, which is in the south. Once he arrives there, we're into Act 3. Today we're going to start Act 2, but I want to remind you, just briefly, that Act 2 is bracketed, or excuse me, Act 1 is bracketed by two sets of texts about seeing and perceiving. If you've been with us, hopefully this is review. There's a set of texts in Mark 4, the parable of the soils, where Jesus says the disciples are insiders, and then the people on the outside are going to not really understand what's happening because Jesus is going to speak in parables. Go ahead and fire that up if you would. Jesus said to his his disciples, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that, and then he quotes uh, from Isaiah, They may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. And we had a whole conversation about what he's saying there. But initially, the idea was the disciples were the insiders, and the outsiders were the ones who wouldn't understand. And the irony of this first section of Mark is that it turns out that the disciples are the ones who fail to see and perceive. And a whole bunch of unclean outsiders are the ones who do. And so by the middle of chapter 8, Jesus looks at his disciples and and he says the same thing about them. Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Do you still not understand or see? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? Do you still not understand? And so Mark 4, the parable of the soils, isn't about, like, non-Christians. It's about what the disciples are going to do. The disciples embody the bad soil all throughout this section of the book of Mark. And it's the demon-possessed people, and it's the sick people, and and the unclean people who rush into the kingdom and really understand what it is that Jesus is about. Now, all of that is review. When Mark does this sandwich technique... It's called an inclusio, and he's going to do it again around the second section. This time, he's going to use two stories about blind men. And the blind, and and again, if you read these stories in isolation of each other, you think, okay, this is cute. Jesus heals somebody and moves on. Jesus walks on water and moves on. But Mark is arranging these to make a theological point. And in this case, the sandwich the stories of the two blind men bracket a whole section where the disciples are blind to the true meaning of Jesus' messiahship. The blind men stand in for the disciples. So, Mark chapter 8, ladies and gentlemen. You guys okay? All right. I feel like you're really interested or not, and I can't tell which. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes, now hold on a second. In the ancient Near East, spit is like one of the most dirty, unclean things that you could ever do. Like to get spit on somebody or to spit on them was the grievous of insults. So Jesus is using spit, which is just weird, (laughs) to heal this guy's blindness. 
When he put spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus said, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, this is the only, I think the only instance where Jesus needs like two stages to get a healing done. Which is weird, right? Because everywhere else, he can just zap somebody and it's done. So here, it's not like Jesus was short on power that day. And he's like, you know, I missed, so I got to try it again. (laughs) The two-stage healing is symbolic. For who? The disciples. The disciples, they've encountered Jesus, and they're like, the, the guy when he says, oh yeah, I see things very fuzzily, like there are trees walking around, but they don't see clearly yet. And so what Jesus is gonna do in this section is help them uh, to try to see clearly, all right? Now, the, this sandwich is, um, this section is bracketed by another healing story. We'll just look at super quick and we'll look at it more when we get there. Go ahead and fire that up. Then the disciples uh, came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, thank you, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy. Jesus stopped, said, call him. So they uh, called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, your faith is healed you. We don't need spit. We don't need two stages. Boom. Now, those two blind man stories, one of the things that we're trying to kind of impress upon our hearts in the book of Mark is that those aren't random they're put there to bracket the material in between those two stories. And it's about the disciples learning to see. Jesus is gonna predict his death three times and the disciples are gonna misunderstand it three times. So the next three weeks, we're gonna look at each one of those misunderstandings because they're super insightful. Because none of us would misunderstand Jesus today, but just because they're dorks, we will just, you know... That was um, sarcasm. Now, back to uh, Mark 8. Are we clear so far? So we've got sandwiches upon sandwiches. And I love the sandwich metaphor. I wonder why. Mark chapter 8. Verse 27. This is right after the, the blind man, the first blind man story. Jesus and his disciples went to the region around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And and Peter answered, you are the Messiah. The Greek word there is Christos, you are the Christ. Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Mother's last name wasn't Mary Christ. Christ is a title, Jesus the Messiah. And, And then you're like, finally, finally, they get it. We're eight chapters in. Yes, they got it. The right answer, perfect. And then there's this last verse. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone. (laughs) You're like, what? Come on, man. The whole point of him was like for people to know who he was. 
But then we realize, and this is the first time we get a glimpse at what it is the disciples have been missing all along. He then, verse 31, began to teach them that the Son of Man, a, a reference to Daniel 7 and the saving work of God's anointed one, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now, you guys, it's like, um, I, I mean, I, I don't even have words or pictures strong enough so that you might um, appreciate. The disciples had been waiting their whole lives for someone to go to the capital city and kick out the Romans and to really put Israel back where Israel should be. And, and because we're Christians and we know this story, like the back of our hands, we're so familiar with it, it just robs it of any punch. Because this, this, I mean, would have been absolutely stunning. What the disciples signed up for was a trip to Jerusalem in glory. It was not in suffering. And so the idea that the Messiah would suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders, it's just nonsense. So, what does Peter do? <laughs> After Jesus spoke plainly about this, Peter took him aside and began to what? Right, love Peter. Why would Peter rebuke Jesus? Because this is not how the messianic thing was going to unfold. The, the Messiah was going to come in power, not in suffering. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. You never want to out-rebuke Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And, and he said, get behind me, who? Now, Satan has been a shadowy figure up until this point. He tempts Jesus, but we don't get any, in Mark anyway, we don't get any insight into the temptation. We realize that as the disciples were casting out demons, right, Satan is falling like lightning, cool. But here's the first time we get a glimpse that the temptation that Satan represented was for Jesus to come as the Son of Man in power without suffering and dying first. This is the first glimpse we get that sitting behind Peter's objection is the actual temptation that Satan had been, you know, dragging around with Jesus all along. To have all the glory, all the power, all the worship without the suffering death. And not that anyone today would succumb to that temptation too. Sarcasm. But this is what Jesus refers to in chapter four when he says, Satan will come and snatch the seed of the kingdom away from those who've heard it. This is, this is what that looks like. That, like, that the message of Jesus has generated huge crowds. His miracle working, I mean, my goodness, the power, his, even the authority of his teaching. There was so much excitement around Jesus, and it was all separate from his suffering, humiliation, and death. And so the kingdom, the secret of the kingdom, and what the outsiders all saw that the disciples missed is that Jesus had come in weakness and vulnerability, not in glory and power. So the outsiders would come in their weakness and beg Jesus to heal, and he would heal. 
the disciples come in their self-righteous assurance that they're coming to the capital of their nation in glory. And Jesus looks at them and says, are your hearts so hard? This whole thing is the turning point of the book of Mark. The thing that's been obscured from the disciples is that Jesus actually has to suffer. And that that is how he is enthroned as king. Now, to us, after the, this is all written, it's like, well, yeah, yeah, we all know the Jesus story. Good Friday, Easter, yeah, we got it. We don't got it. Because Jesus then explains, he called the crowd along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Now, the word lose here in Greek is the word destroy. It's a really strong word. Whoever wants to save your life must destroy it. But whoever destroys their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, have so many Instagram follows, yet forfeit their soul? Oh, now this is, now we're preaching because this is the part I don't ever want to talk about. I love the resurrection stuff. I love the miracle stuff. I love the walking on water, Jesus. But the Jesus that says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, I want to turn that into a metaphor. Right? And for them, was taking up your cross a metaphor? No. Man, people were taking up their cross all the time. And the only reason you would take up your cross is because you had been sentenced to death. You would forfeit your rights and privileges and participation in human society to the point where Rome had judged you to be put to death. And not just any death, but the most humiliating of all deaths. Agonizing, delayed, naked, humiliated. Absolutely. And so Jesus is like, hey, disciples, I know there's lots of momentum, I've just told you I have to suffer and die. Peter says, no, you don't. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Peter. Like, follow me. You're not leading me. You're following me. But then he says, if anyone else is going to follow me, right? Because Peter wasn't following. So Peter wants Jesus to avoid the whole suffering and dying thing. But if anyone is going to follow me, they're going to follow me into suffering and dying. You'll take up your cross, you'll deny yourself, and follow me. Now, a really big question I've always wrestled with is, what exactly does that mean? I was talking to someone in our community who was asking one of the most profound questions I've ever heard. She had had several, um, uh, she'd had a very hard time getting pregnant, lots of pain and agony, she has a, a newborn, and she's like, what does this mean to surrender my newborn? Does that mean I'm not supposed to care if my newborn dies? Right? Is that what surrender means? Is that what deny yourself means? Like, I can't want anything or pray for anything? What, is, what does that mean? So this is, these are words, if you're church people, we've heard these words, right? But what does it mean to take up your cross and deny yourself, particularly when there aren't crosses anymore except in jewelry stores? So to answer that question and to really like give some meat to what is a cross-shaped life, we're gonna go to the book of Philippians. Because here, 
Paul, okay, why did you look at him? You love Philippians? So you leaned over and you said, I love that book. You are a woman to be praised. (laughs) Absolutely. So you know what? Since you love it, let's go there. Shall we? I wasn't going to, but now we will. No, there's this thing that Paul says, and we've looked at this before, but I need reminding about every week, so I think once a year we should remind ourselves of this. So Paul, man, oh, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. (laughs) Oh, that rolls out our social media platformers, or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, here's the big point. Look at me, if you would, for a second. For Jesus and Paul, the cross isn't something that secures our salvation and then has nothing else to do. The cross is a way of reorienting your life towards people. And Paul's gonna tell us what that reorientation looks like. See, I thought the cross, the only job of the cross was to save me. Paul, well, Jesus first, and then Paul introduces the idea that actually the cross is the culmination of a mode of life that Jesus had his entire ministry that ended in his physical execution, but it's a mode of life that his followers are to embody. And here's what that mode of life looks like. And this is where I'm gonna end us relatively early and we can talk all about it. In your relationships with one another, you should have the same mindset or orientation as Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, my, I memorized this way back when I was a college student, and the word he did, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped was the word. That Greek verb literally means grasping onto a lever so that you can climb up to your own advantage. So the NIV actually nails the, the meaning here. Even though Jesus had all the rights and privileges of godness, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, something to be exploited for more, something to be capitalized upon. Instead, he made himself nothing. How did he make himself nothing? By taking the very nature of a servant. And what was that nature? He was made in human likeness. But not just, I mean, that's humbling enough. (laughs) But then, and being found in appearance, in this humble appearance as a human person, he humbled himself even further by being obedient to God, even to death. And not just any death, but death on a cross, the most humiliating death. So do you see the downward trajectory? All the rights and prerogatives of God, it's not just that he didn't exploit them, but he surrendered them and self-expended and, and self-sacrificial loved people. Is that a word? I don't know. He loved people through the expending of his life. Therefore, 
God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. This is a, a text from Isaiah that uses, is applied to Yahweh. That in the name of Jesus now, every knee would bow in heaven on earth under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the idea is Jesus has all rights and privileges as God and he yields those. He surrenders those. He doesn't exploit those. He still has them, but doesn't use them for his own advantage. And instead, he expends that privilege for the sake of other people. Are you with me so far? Fascinating. The hammer's coming. Next, a guy named Michael Gorman, who introduced a concept called cruciform or cruciformity. Uh, it's the idea of living in the shape of the cross. Because we all like math, he breaks this down in an equation. So this text breaks down even though X, not Y, but Z. So even though Gen X, not Gen Y, but Gen Z, that's how I read that. No, he says X stands for privileges and prerogatives that God had. He, in, in very nature, he is God. Why he did not capitalize for his own advantage, but instead, Z, self-expended. So if you want to know what a cross-shaped life looks like, here you go. You have a whole bunch of X, money, time, energy, privilege. You have, you have agency and power in the world. Some of us have economic resources that others of us don't have. Some of us have education that others don't have. Some of us have skills and technical ability others of us don't have. A cross-shaped life is when you take the gifts you've been given and rather than using them to get yourself more, you use them instead in the service of other people. That's a cross-shaped life. That's what taking up your cross means. So I have money. Instead of using that money to gain more money, I use that money in the service of blessing others, right? I have power in the world. Instead of using that power to get myself more power, I use my power in self-expenditure in the service of others. Are you with me on this? Now, this way of living was so countercultural in Paul's day. In Paul's day, in the Roman system, honor was the greatest value. Honor was what everyone thought about you, the esteem of the community. And every interaction was a chance for you to gain honor or lose honor. And the goal in Rome was to accumulate as much honor as possible. Jesus, of course, takes the opposite direction. He loses honor that was rightly his. And this conception is totally radical in our days too, right? What should I use a platform for? to get a bigger platform, right? We are, the, the values of America have totally infected the church. And if this is news to you, I just, I think we're not paying attention. Nowhere in the Bible is bigger, better, more a value of the kingdom of God, right? And yet we have, we have rankings of the fastest growing churches and the largest churches and pastors gatherings where all the largest churches um, sell their 
books and tell us how to do it. And I mean, it's just, and I've been a part of all of that. I've loved that. I've done that. And I just want to barf. And I want to use stronger language. I, I mean, it is absolutely antithetical to what's being taught here. So, two points of conversation, and then we'll open it up, all right? First thing is this. Unless it looks like this, it's not Christian. If it's power-seeking, it's not Christian. If it seeks to control, it's not Christian. If it punishes and takes vengeance, it's not Christian. It doesn't matter what it calls itself. It doesn't matter what songs it sings or what creed it ascribes to. This is what Christian looks like. The love of enemy, love of everybody, radical embodiment of grace that Jesus of Nazareth is and was. That can only be called Christian. Are you with me? Potpourri cannot be called Christian. I don't know where that came from, but I used to frequent Christian bookstores, and they would sell Fruit of the Spirit Potpourri, and it drove me crazy. (laughs) What does peace and joy and love smell like? I don't know, but not like that. (laughs) So we live in a culture that calls things Christians that have, that Christian that have nothing to do with Jesus. Would you agree? And so one of the things that we, that one of the central places the church fits in our culture isn't calling out everybody else for their lack of Christian. It's focusing on our being more and more Christian ourselves. You with me? Secondly, and this is the most important point, there is nothing so important that is happening in our world that will require you to abandon this posture. Being Christian is, staying Christian is harder than becoming Christian. I was taught there are things that happen in our world that are so important, it's okay for me to get off of my cross and use my power and money and influence to solve world problems, right? I mean, and parents, parents, look at me. How often are we tempted to get off of our crosses with our children and introduce a little power over into our relationships with them, right? I mean, I was taught people are going to hell, and so it's okay if you're a jerk. If only one person repents, doesn't matter if hundreds were turned off, if only one person repents, you've done your job. I just, I don't see that. There is nothing in our world that requires us to abandon weakness, vulnerability, lament, prayer, confession, reconciliation, forgiveness, generosity, blessing, But the problem is, we're convinced, at least as Americans, that those ways don't work in the world. So we have to do something else. So central to staying Christian is the idea (laughs) that the, the way that Jesus exercised rights, privileges, and power in the world is how we ought to as well. And there's nothing so important that requires us to get off of our cross to solve. Are you with me? All right. This is me ending early, by the way. You have any questions? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. 
This is, whoa, hello. Hello. You need to know we're really, we love kids that are wandering and kids that are crying and kids that are walking around with coffee cups. Hi. She's like, I don't know about this guy. All right, Peter, yes. I don't know about that guy. Does she have a question? <laughs> okay. I, I couldn't hold this in anymore, so whether you were going to go to questions or not, I was going to ask it. I love it. Um, how does, is there an end to the self-sacrifice? Is there a limit? And how does that go with our great ideas of self-boundaries and what do they call it, self-care? And can we, I mean, is there a limit to the self-sacrifice? And what about our boundaries, Mike? Yeah. Boundaries, Mike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about boundaries. Yes, yes, such a great question. So the only time Jesus was asked something like this was when Jesus was talking about forgiveness. And Peter's like, how many times should we forgive? Seven? Which, and, and you're like, dude, that's totally awesome. Oh, if she comes up here, I'm hugging her. I am hugging. She's like, nope, I'm out. I don't need some strange middle-aged dude hugging me now. And, and Peter, in the offering of seven, okay, is like, that's really magnanimous. Jewish oral tradition said you had to forgive someone three times. And what's Jesus say? Not seven, 70 times seven, which is a reference to Lamech in Genesis four, where Lamech says, I will be avenged 77 times, you know, if someone avenges me. How am I supposed to focus with this much cuteness? I have no idea. When I look in the mirror, I ask that question too. <laughs> and so... <laughs> So dumb. I'm sorry, Timmons. I'm sorry. So on the one hand, the answer is no. Of course there's no limit. And the fact that we would search for one instantly says more about us than anything else, correct? Now, it's fascinating because in the Bible, forgiveness doesn't mean allowing things to go back to the way they were or forgetting what happened. In fact, truth-telling is a central part of biblical forgiveness. So implied in the, the picture of forgiveness are boundaries, of course. Um, how that works, man. I mean, I think that's, that's... Well, I know I changed it to forgiveness as an expression of self-sacrifice. Because, I mean, well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, if you ask Jesus how... The only time Jesus has asked, how far should we go in imitating you? That was the answer he gave. So I want to do him justice by saying, I think he would give a similar answer here. With our trauma-informed sort of discipleship sensibilities, which I think are wise and good, we recognize right, that, that self-expenditure can be a very self-destructive and codependent thing. So I don't see a rule at all, but rather a humility that continually asks, God, have I, is this, is this enough? And the only way to determine that is in either therapy or community or both. 
And so I do think there are places where self-expending can be a very negative thing. But for Jesus, Hebrews tells us it was joy. Like this wasn't burdensome. And so if you're convinced that the way of Jesus is actually the best way to be human, being generous or forgiving or reconciling doesn't become easy, but it doesn't become drudgery either. So that's such a wonderful question. Susie, do you want to add anything to that? I know you have uh, lots of thoughts around this topic of how best to disciple people. Anything you want to add? Um, yeah. So there, there's actually like on the text thread, there's several people are texting in. What about boundaries? What about self-care? Yeah. Like all those things. And I think the way that you said it is actually really great is that there's a continual check-in and a continual asking God and putting it before God. Like not just like maybe not thinking about your boundaries first, but maybe going to God first and, and asking him, putting it before him, like where are my boundaries supposed to be in this situation? How do I love well in this situation? You know, all of those things, but it's not, there isn't a rule. And I think totally. sometimes in our own work that we do, we create rules for ourselves, which are helpful at times and then sometimes can be unhelpful. So like we talk about how it's, you're always a work in progress and it's right. an ongoing lifelong work. I mean, this is, it's part of it. So yeah, humility always asks the question. Yeah, that's so good, mm -hmm. Suze, because I don't want to water down Jesus right? Jesus says, love your enemies. But what about my boundaries? Right? I, I don't know about you. I use boundaries at times, shockingly, as a way to get out of loving people. So I have to be provoked into this messy middle ground to at least open myself up to the possibility that my boundaries are there for self um, uh, comfort rather than Speaking of boundaries, no, she is so welcome, dude, Cam. Well, the thing, She's too, so that we mess up, I think, that, or don't mess up, but we don't do enough of, especially in the Christian community, is we've gotten really good at boundaries, but we're still not great at telling the truth. And so, like, if you have a boundary, then, you know, it, it, it might be, like, a time where you get to love somebody by telling them the truth. Like, I, this is not working for me because of X, Y, and Z, or, you know... But that's the part I think that, you know, we miss out on the edification of, of the body by not also coming out and telling the truth. And I would 100% agree that forgiveness and reconciliation does not always mean restoration. It often means a renegotiation of a relationship. And sometimes you have to love somebody from afar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that was good. Maybe she should ask the questions or answer the questions is what I'm thinking. <laughs> Okay, yes. so my question here is what I was hearing in that, and that the last thing I wrote was that this is talking about our gifts, that we're taking our gifts that we have and we are um, using those in service to other people. Yeah. So then my question is, if that's what, we're ta if that's what Jesus was talking about in self-sacrifice and, yeah. and those things, why did the evangelical church for so long teach it in a way of <laughs> you're giving something you don't have, that you're sacrificing. Yeah, yeah. Like killing yourself versus yeah. giving to, of to, your gifts. To, yeah, to, pre, to please God, the tyrant God was represented by the tyrant church. 
And you just, unless you're exhausted and burned out, right, you're not really serving Jesus. And there are, because there are kids in the room, we will refrain from using language that would be appropriate here. So why would evangelicals do that? Well, it's fascinating because the disciples are going to. So first, it's been with us the whole time, right? The, the, the human bent is towards self-gratification, self-glorification, self-determination, totally. And there's a stream of Christianity that's presented Christianity as too triumphant, but there's also a stream that's presented Christianity as too sorrowful. And the idea that we, that we have to be miserable in order to follow Jesus, Jesus was the most joyful person that's ever lived on the planet. You don't dig a hole through a roof for some guy that's a joyless moral teacher, right? You don't fight through a crowd to touch the hem of his robe. You don't sit for three days in a remote place and listen to his teaching. So on the one hand, we wanna avoid the overly triumphant satanic temptation of taking all the suffering and self-denial out of the Christian story. But at the same time, we wanna avoid this idea that yeah, the, it, we're not truly serving Jesus unless we're exhausted at the end of ourselves and have a, have a really poor marriage. Totally, a big difference in humble versus sacrifice. That's right. So, I mean, dumb example incoming, all right? So uh, I have been a teacher on a stage for over 20 years. I started when I was 10. You can understand this. Now, I, one day my therapist looked at me and she said, whose wounds are you trying to heal when you teach? Yours or your audience? Her point was, I'd been covering shame by using competence. So even though I had a platform, I was using it to protect myself, to project a false image of myself that people approved of. And I was not self-expending, right? I was self-glorifying. And the difference between that way of teaching and what I'm trying to do these days is so ridiculously massive it's taken years to kind of unfold. So the question we should be asking right back to your point, Kim, isn't, am I suffering enough for Jesus? It's what are the privileges and prerogatives I have and how do I best leverage those for kingdom aligned ways in service to other people? Are you with me? That is a much different question. Does that make sense? I know it's tough to focus Good Lord, she's so adorable. Okay, one more, Suze. Hey, okay, so I'm gonna do my best to lay this out here real quick. Lay it out. Um, I, it doesn't seem possible to me, in my experience, to do this, it wasn't for me, to put down self-defense, self-reliance. Self-protection. Self-protection, any totally. of that, without, um, in my experience, complete nuclear winner in your life, without complete destruction. That actually realize how much you need him yeah. to come face-to-face -face with your own evil your own capacity for evil yeah and then to actually surrender yeah most people don't get that privilege i don't yeah think. especially oh, in america so um and you know i mean if you want to like take the 12-step recovery view on it that's yep. what the 12-steps are for totally um and it, the, the lesson is in that if you don't do these things you will die from your right. disease most right. folks don't have to deal with that so, right so what do we do 
Yes, oh, that's so great. How many of you have totally cratered your lives? I have. Okay, so we know this, correct? You step into a 12-step program, and it's like, yeah, these are my people. Absolutely. But your point is so good, because as long as we think there is treasure elsewhere, as long as we think that what Christianity means, giving up stuff I want for stuff I don't want, then you're absolutely right. Who would ever do that? That's why we frame the whole story badly. Jesus has not come to get us to sin less. All right? He hasn't. He's come, according to Paul, to restore the image of God in us. The image of God in us is a callback to Genesis 1 where we were fully human. And so I've become convinced that forgiveness is the best way to live, not some religious duty. And generosity is the best way to live. And humility is the best way to live. Now, it's taken all sorts of bumps and craters to get there. But this doesn't feel like work to me. This feels like privilege and joy. Because I'm in touch with how much power and privilege I have and how much I've always used that to self-protect, self-aggrandize, right, self-glorify, and to begin to be cracked open enough to say, what would it look like if I got rid of this spiritual narcissism where I'm the center of God's story and actually began to use all that I've been given in service of something bigger. And that's, my friends, where the best joy of the whole story comes in. And I know all of us religious people are gonna say, yes, you're right. But it's a journey we have to sort of taste for ourselves. And for some of us, we make that really easy because we crater our lives and get rescued out of it. But for others of us, we're like the older son in the prodigal story where we've been religious and performing our whole life just to be pleased or just to please God and be loved by him. And the idea that you're playing the exact wrong game is terrifying. Because all we know about God is that he's here to punish us if we screw it up. And that's just not the God that Jesus presents to us. That God has come to rescue. But the only precondition to rescuing is asking for help. So self-righteousness is just as deadly in the scriptures as immorality. In fact, religion is the best way to hide from God. Because the addicts here and the screw-ups here and the colossal sinners here, we know what we're capable of. Okay, I think we're good, right? We got it all figured out? Can we do one more? Yeah, we got one more over here, Mike. If, if okay, we we're at 10.06. Okay. Oh, whoops. Uh, Guys, it's 10.06. I thought I wasn't. <laughs> I mean, we're supposed to end in 14 minutes. <laughs> I thought I wasn't going. I thought I was done. Um, and mine's kind of like kind of uh, rough. Um, you ask the best questions. No okay. more disclaimers from you. Okay. No more disclaimers. I love so, that you didn't grow up in a religious environment, and this is all hitting you new, and I love it because you give a great voice to how dumb some of our religious language sounds. So I started recovering, uh, wrestling with religion after getting into recovery. Right, yes. Which means that they say that addiction is a disease of shame, mm. which means that my struggle is I cannot go anywhere that starts talking any shame language. Yeah. But listening to you talk, I'm like, how could you wrestle with this 
it makes me understand why there's so many shame-based religions that get so sick. Because how it is like the shame of wrestling with this. How do you overcome it? Like it's everybody's feel like is going to go through it. Totally. And the worst things in our lives come from shame. Yeah. The worst behaviors and sick things we do. Yeah. It's like, oh man, this is why there's so many denominations that are shame-based. Yeah. It's so sick. Yes. Um, what do you, how do, I mean, it's like, this just the trap of humanity. <laughs> just, yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, that's so sad. It is so sad. <laughs> and that, if you want to know, if, if you've really found Jesus, does Jesus add to your shame or does he liberate you from it? That's the test. And liberation doesn't mean, hey, dude, you're just fine the way you are. Liberation means like the, the Samaritan woman who goes to her village and says, I met a man, man who knew everything about me. And she was pumped by that. Who among us? I mean, the idea that God knows it all is either liberating or terrifying. Or both. Yes. But you're so on to something. Listen, we say this over and over and over again, and you don't have to buy this. You don't. Study the text for yourselves. If you start by presenting Jesus as the answer to a sin problem, then the whole thing is sin-focused. Now, Jesus does deal with our sin problem, yes, and we do have a sin problem, yes. But that little story is framed in a much bigger issue. And so part of getting over the shame of this is recognizing that my, the goal of my life isn't to sin less but it's to step further into the fullness of the humanity that Jesus presents as the ultimate image of God. And I sin less as a result. Not because I'm trying, but because I don't want to. When I used to see how pornography would just medicate, medicate and just further shame. And it was, I had accountability groups and software and none of that ever worked. I just, and, and somebody said, you know, the reason I don't struggle with that is because I just don't want to be like that anymore. That opened up something for me that was like, oh yeah. So I started praying that I would get to the place where my desire would change. And slowly, not that there's perfection in any way, shape, or form, but slowly I see that progress. And it's liberating. It's not drudgery. So this is an invitation to freedom, although it's really hard for us to see it this way because of the way passages like this have, have been used, correct? All right. Can we be done now, Suze? I'm tired. All right, let's do this. Yep, band, come on up. I'm sorry, it's 10:10. You don't understand. I can see when I'm going over. I, mean, I don't even have to look at the clock. I see you. I hear that stomach's rumbling. Feel your energy. And I decide to keep going. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to spend a few moments together. And there are these little stations we put around the room, two in the back, two in the front. And those stations are just to bodily practice what it is we just talked about. 
that you can go to the Lord's table right now and you don't have to apologize first. You can walk right up there and say, Father, receive me as your child. And I take the bread and the cup to believe that that's the reality that defines me. Even if you don't buy it. To write down prayer requests that are just ruthlessly honest because you recognize you don't have to be alone. And you don't have to pretend. So let me pray and we'll dive in together. Yeah. Oh, do we have prayer people today? Okay. Sam, where are you gonna be? Okay. So Sam and Susie, and of the two, Susie's probably the better prayer. I, I mean, <laughs> we took an informal poll. But sometimes prayer requesting isn't enough. Sometimes an embodied voice needs to see you and hear you and pray over you. And so we just wanna make that available and we wanna do this regularly around the room. So they'll be in the back if we could pray. I wanna pray for us and then we'll just spend some time together wrestling with all of this. Lord Jesus, Lord, um, we just wanna take a moment to appreciate the compelling beauty of Jesus and his invitation. We wanna take a moment to recognize all of the ways, Lord, that that gets twisted. And we just come and we ask like the Asbury students have asked, Lord, that you would visit among us with power to set us free. And so Lord, would you hear our prayer and would you draw near, particularly with those who are brokenhearted this morning? It says you're very close to them. And I pray that they might sense that reality. So in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.